Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. So it's always something that I'm not particularly proud of to think that the United States is, by any statistical measure, the largest jailer nation in the world. We lock up a larger percentage of our population than anybody. Uh, And that either does or doesn't include, depending on the numbers you're looking at, uh, the number of people who are under continued supervision through parole programs, which carry their own burdens uh, and often go on too long. It also sometimes doesn't include the number of people who are locked up but not tried because of the bail system here, because of the long waits uh, for uh, a trial. There are a lot of people who are sitting in jails right now who haven't been convicted of anything. So that's a problem, you know, and, and, and admirably, um, there's been kind of a national consensus in the last two decades that we, we don't want to do things that way. People have reasons for wanting to make these changes that are different. I mean, some of us just see that as just an insane thing to be doing, locking up so many people uh, and morally wrong to incarcerate so many people for so long. Uh, there are other people who think it just costs too much money uh, to have that many people incarcerated, which it does. It does cost a lot of money. So so we tried to change that, right? We've t- tried to alter the size of our prison populations. Uh, we've tried to shorten the sentences. We've tried to divert more people in, into alternative programs that don't involve incarceration. Um, we tried a whole bunch of things. And I think we're all feeling pretty good about that. But one thing that we came to realize is getting to, as we were getting ready for this show is maybe one thing we haven't done all that well is plan for people after they get out. Um, you know, how good are our reentry programs? How much access to housing uh, do people have when they get out? Uh, how much uh, access to how many kinds of jobs can they have? Stuff like that. And when you look at that, it's a little less impressive, maybe a lot less impressive. Uh, and that's what we're going to be talking about today. What happens? And it's not just jobs and houses, too. I mean, most people if they wind up in prison, probably got there through some fairly traumatizing life before prison. And then prison itself, this is not like, you know, going to graduate school. This is prison. It's traumatizing. So as people get out, uh, they are not necessarily emotionally or psychologically on the same level as people who've just been part of society during that same period of time. So how do we deal with all this? Well, we're going to uh, talk to three formerly incarcerated men here today. We're also going to talk to some people who have been tr- who are trying to be part of the solution. Uh, and we're going to try to at least give you kind of a picture. So in the studio with me right now uh, are Larry. We're just going to use his first name. He's a husband, father, and as, as I say, like all three guests here, formerly incarcerated. Uh, Dai McKnight, program manager of Young Fathers Reentry Project for Family Reentry. Uh, Jeffrey Grant, Jeff Grant, former lawyer now minister, co-founder, prisonist.org, co-host of the Criminal Justice Insider Podcast on WNHH in New Haven. Uh, And uh, we are going to just begin by just talking about, I I think, what it's like when you get out. Uh, In fact, before I go into some of the nitty-gritty of – you know, of policy and stuff like that, I think it's important to share experiences and and particularly – so Larry – 
describe what happened the day or the first week or the first month uh, after you got out. What kind of – what did you have in terms of resources or things to kind of just keep you on your feet, get you back into society? Uh, First thing I want to mention is um, – you're right. I am 50 years, 58 years old. Um, I just recently got married and took the responsibility of a child. And um, I have to say it's invigorating. <laughs> that's good. That's yeah. good. Yeah. Uh, but um, let's not lose focus on why we're here. Mm. Um, I want to talk about the day mm. I got out of yeah. prison. Yeah. Let's talk about that. Let's first. talk about that day. Um, they put me in a van. And all I had was um, a box. In this box, I had my personal effects that I sort of accumulated over the years that I've been in prison. A few pictures, a couple of letters I wanted to keep, some some clothing. And um, they put me in the back of this van, and they drove me to Hartford. Now, mind you, I'm not from Hartford, never lived in Hartford, and... uh, I didn't know my way around when I got here, but they dropped me off at St. Peter's Church here on Main Street in the parking lot. And uh, they said, uh, you have a nice day. Oh, by the way, we have a uh, bus pass for you. And I'm thinking that this bus pass is going to be my ticket to wherever it is I need to go. But it was just a two-hour bus pass from uh, Connecticut Transit. Mm. So here we are. I'm standing in this parking lot. I just done over 33 years and I've never been to Harvard and before I got to this point I was not given any sort of valid information on what I should do from here Um, granted they did give me an ID um, but I just didn't know where to go it's January 30th it's one of the coldest days in January. I didn't have a coat. Uh, I just had a gray sweatshirt and my tan pants, the tan that we wear as prison garb in prison, and state-issue boots. So I'm standing here. And I see these group of people standing in front of uh, St. Anthony's, uh, what they call a uh, homeless um, sort of distribution uh, place where you go there and they place you in a homeless shelter in Hartford. Now, I remind you, it's wintertime, so they're placing people everywhere. I finally get to a McKinney shelter, and I have to tell you, it's the worst place I've ever seen in my life. Uh, there's crackheads there who's coming off their high. There's, uh, it, it was just a bad situation. And being that it was crowded, I didn't have a bed to sleep in. They gave me a cot that sat on the floor. And so I, I slept on this floor for about a week before they finally gave me a bed. Mm-hmm. But uh, the meals was just like prison food, tasteless, uh, not warm. And so I'm sitting here, and I'm like, what do I do next? So... My instinct tells me, uh, let's look for a job. I mean, how else am I going to get some money? 
So I went down to um, City Hall. I got a map of the city. And I started uh, listening to some of the radio shows and some of the businesses that they like to uh, say their addresses on or whatever. And so I started going to these places and started applying for jobs. I did this for, I'm going to say a month before I finally got my first job. It was a, a former offender, I think, that gave you a job too, right? Yes. Yeah. I went to this uh, restaurant. I'm not going to name the restaurant because I don't know if they want me to put their name out there. But I went to this restaurant and this uh, ex-offender who I know personally, who we done time together with, and uh, he says, uh, you looking for a job? I see. I see. yes. He said, I'll tell you what. Come tomorrow at a certain time. And we're going to start you. Well, what about the application process? Don't worry about that. We'll take care of that tomorrow when you get here. And so I worked for them for 18 months. Mm. So, Larry, I want to just say uh, we're going to talk at the end of the show about a restaurant business that is proud to and wants people to know that uh, they hire formerly incarcerated people. Um, so I just want to pause your story there and get everybody else here involved. You know, Dai, in a way, your path is a little bit different. Larry was what they call EOS, right? End of sentence. Yes. Uh, you get out, end of sentence. Um, you were parole and in some ways – my sense is parole has a little bit more of a pipeline, a little bit more uh, of an off-ramp uh, for you to get out and get into society. Um, fair? Is that fair to say or not? I actually wasn't parole. Okay. I was EOS. You were EOS too, okay. But I was fortunate enough to get to the halfway house uh, nine months prior to being released. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the difference is that at – and let me – give you uh, some information for a backdrop here sure. so listeners can understand. Uh, at one point in time, if you were on parole, EOS hasn't really had any supportive services, basic need services, and, unless um, there was some kind of um, mental health issue attached or substance abuse issue attached where you could get basic needs through ATR mm-hmm. and ABH. But far as just reentry needs, uh, EOS has always kind of been out in the wilderness. Mm-hmm. But if you were on parole at one time, yeah. uh, when I got out, there was no, there were really no services, reentry services for parole or EOS. Mm-hmm. But when I started working for Family Reentry, uh, the Fresh Start program, uh, which was a great model that they built, patterned after the Delancey Street project in San mm-hmm. Francisco. And the Fresh Start is down in New Haven, right? Down in Bridgeport. Bridgeport That's the okay. original Fresh Start okay. program. Mm-hmm. And then they took that name uh, mm-hmm. later, but it was originally in Bridgeport, Connecticut. And they had a contract with parole, and there was reentry, basic needs, and supportive services that were available. Uh, and that was after I got out. That was uh, 10 years ago when I started working for family reentry. Those services were in place. However, when Governor Malloy cut the budget, um, you know, Connecticut's done some great things uh, as far as, like, there's still some things going on pre-release. But when Governor Malloy cut that budget, he destroyed the reentry model. Because in order for this mechanism to work, you have to have both components of the machine. You can't just have uh, pre-release services, but when the guys get out, there's no post-relief supportive services. Mm-hmm. So when he cut that budget approximately, I, I think it was maybe three, four years ago. I could be wrong about the number. But uh, we've been suffering ever since in Connecticut, um, and it's running counterproductive to using the word that we're a second-chance state because there are no state-funded supportive services for reentry and basic needs with people getting out 
on parole or EOS right now. If there are any services, they are funded by uh, the federal government, which those grants only run for three years. They take a lot of that stuff for data to talk before Congress about what works and what doesn't work. A lot of times they don't renew those grants or it's privately funded. Uh, and a perfect example of that is two of our programs at Family Reentry, uh, the Young Dads program, which went into Manson Youth Institution, that grant ended and we don't have any funding, but we're still running a program with no budget. We're still going into facility pre-release and trying to kind of be creative to help these guys when they get out. And the, transmitterin, uh, the Transitions Mentoring Program, which is ran by John Mealy at Family Reentry, when they cut that budget, John ended up securing uh, private funding. We've been private funding ever since to keep that program going for young men who get a mentor. They get a Yale tutor when they come out of um, Manson Youth Institution and return to society. So to answer your question in a nutshell, uh, when I got out, there was nothing. But I was fortunate enough to go to the halfway house and be wise enough to try to work and save money to have some kind of cushion to help me reacclimate back into society when I get there. But... Um, Ten years ago, they were, Connecticut was on the right track. We were, we were making headway. We were the premier model for Second Chance Society. But without that post-release component, we're really spinning our wheels because we need both pieces to make the machine work properly. Right. Just to give people, before we go to Jeff, a, a little kind of numerical sense of this. Uh, so from August of 2017 through July of 2018, uh, about 11,000 men and women were released from prison uh, with about 6,000 leaving through some kind of parole or other kind of discretionary release. Um, they typically do have a, a little bit more help, uh, continuing help in finding housing and employment. But almost 5,000, 4,677, served full sentences and left prison without supervision and in many cases without support. So, Jeff, your story is a little bit different. You were in there for a, a white-collar crime. I think you were also in a uh, maybe a different prison system. Uh, what was it like when you got out? Well, I served uh, almost 14 months in a federal prison in Pennsylvania for white-collar crime I committed when I was an attorney. And uh, on the day I got out, some friends picked me up, and we had five hours to get to a halfway house in Hartford, um, right around the corner from the studio, actually. And uh, I served uh, three weeks there and then went on home detention. And at that point, I didn't have a home to go back to. So I had to uh, scrape together a friend who reluctantly uh, put me up um, in, in her house and had to meet all the criteria. And then I started the road back. And just like guys, every, every sentence is a, law, is a life sentence, Colin. And, mm -hmm. and the truth is that I didn't know that I was unemployable, but I found that out fast. I started to volunteer thinking that would be a road to at least meet people and show that I'm capable of showing up and be trusted. And pretty soon, um, I started to volunteer at Family Reentry, where DAI um, has been for the last 10 years. And uh, they asked me to join their board of directors after about six months. And at the time, I was the only formerly incarcerated person on the board of directors of a, of a large criminal justice organization. About seven years later, they asked me to be their, uh, their um, executive director. And uh, I did that for about two and a half years. So I got to know the Connecticut prison system from working with the guys, from doing therapeutic work, from doing work and learn programs, from actually running the, um, the nonprofit, and from being on the boards of directors of some other nonprofits. And I can tell you that I agree with Dae 100%. This state was absolutely on the right track 10 years ago. We were doing innovative work. And then the money shut off. 
And on July 16th, uh, excuse me, July of 2016, um, we woke up one day and family reentry had lost $2 million per year of fiscal support from the, from the uh, Department of Corrections. And we were operating on a shoestring trying to make it. Um, luckily, uh, the uh, agency is in very, very capable hands right now and doing great. But um, I left to do um, work directly with white collar people. That's what we started, prisons.org, which is a ministry helping white collar uh, um, defendants and their families. And because it's true to my heart and also a topic that um, is very kind of uh, Connecticut centric, Fairfield County centric. And uh, I'm proud to be able to do that. But believe me, if I didn't cut my teeth for 10 years in the system here, learning what works and what didn't work, I'd be of no value to, to anybody right now in this uh, as, a, as an advocate and as a program director. I think what you're hearing, too, if you're listening right now, is valuable in terms of sometimes we have these conversations about the state budget that are kind of abstract, you know, what percentage of it's going to be cut, how is it going to be balanced, stuff like that. Uh, there's a, sort of a general sense uh, of public applause when the state budget gets smaller. Uh, one thing that we do try to bring up sometimes is uh, vulnerable, pop- vulnerable populations uh, often feel the first and worst uh, of those kinds of cuts. These aren't just numbers. These are people. These are people. Uh, that we want to ultimately successfully uh, help, that we want to successfully reincorporate into society, whether it's this group of men right here or some other vulnerable population. So, Larry, I mean, I think it's almost impossible for any of us to wrap our minds around what it's like to step out into the daylight after 33 years. I mean, this isn't just a problem of you getting a job. It isn't just a problem of you finding a place to live, although those are gigantic problems. I mean, it's got to be incredibly just psychologically traumatic to, to, I don't know, is there anything you can say about this to help people understand just what it's like to be in in those shoes? Well, um, I want to go back a minute. Now, when I was in prison, we had uh, several therapeutic programs mm-hmm. uh, that helped me along the way. That sort of grew my mind to um, to grasp the situation that I was presently in, and and hopefully to um, it, you know it turned me around to the person that I am today. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, those programs don't exist in prison anymore, which is one of the reasons why I decided to uh, join your talk show to. To we want to exploit that before we leave. Right. So, However, so to see what those programs uh, were. Well, uh, some of them were drug programs. Some of them were programs that uh, uh, basically uh, helped to. I want to say uh, it, it was about uh, uh, re 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 me re meditating re anyway. It helped me bring about some health issues that I had. Mm-hmm. And another program that I found that was very good was the, uh, the art program that we had mm-hmm. there. And that program allowed me to sort of, uh, you know, it gave me the it, it gave me the use of my creative uh, techniques, like I did in drawing and paintings and so forth. And it helped me to express uh, artistically and examine the psychological and the emotional. Uh, state that I was in at the time through my art. That program needs to come back as well. But anyway. I think there's one program that was called a lifers program? I was in a group. Yeah, so I was in a lifers group. Yeah. And what did they do there? What did they do? Uh, We was a bunch of guys, a bunch of people who 
We're never going home anytime soon. And we basically uh, had a format that helped us deal with day-to-day issues surrounding our uh, incarceration, surrounding our, basically, our mental state, actually. And, you know, how to cope with life in general, Mm -hmm. you know. And the fact that, you know, none of us was going home anytime soon at at that time, um, you know, that was a, you know, that was a great place to go down and build, mm-hmm. you know, so that helped me along. And and like I said, there are programs that was there that did help me and, and mo- it mowed me into the person that I am today. Uh, they have a, um, uh, I did religious services. I did uh, uh, quite a few things. That I want to, I want to talk about this religious stuff because that's a com that's a commonality among the three of you. Uh, Dai, for you, uh, faith was a, a, a big part of this. Faith was maybe a big part of your reckoning with how you're going to live the rest of your life. Absolutely. <clears throat> uh, for me, um, it was a. And, and before I say that, answer your question. I just want to say that, even though we're up here talking about these issues, as people who were formerly incarcerated, we want the community to know that responsibility and accountability is important to us. We're not, it's not hug a thug day. We're talking about real issues that affect real human beings and the collateral damage of how that affects other human beings in society towards public safety. But as an individual, I take full accountability responsibility, and that's one of the things that drives me to do what I do because I can't undo what I did, but if I could prevent other situations from occurring and give people a better quality of life so they don't feel that a crime is an option, then that's my way of making amends. So let me say that for me it was the path of Islam. But whether you take Christianity, Islam, NAAA, maybe you're into yoga, whatever it is, is you have an opportunity to embrace another value system, take that value system, implement it in your life, and it makes you a better person where you're able to be of value, not just to yourself, but to society as a whole. Are, are those programs, the kinds of things you just enumerated, are they in good shape or are they also facing cutbacks? Uh, well, there's, there's religious um, chaplains that go in. I actually go in and volunteer as a religious chaplain in another capacity, uh, religious Islamic chaplain for the past 10 years. And then there's uh, paid chaplains, uh, Christianity, uh, uh, Jewish, uh, Islam, and so those programs are up and running, and those are some really great programs because they give a lot of men and women inside hope when they're in a hopeless situation. They bring light into a dark place. Mm. So, Jeff, you're a minister now, so talk about that path. Well, when I got out of prison, um, um, like everyone who goes through this type of experience, uh, they go through a, a transformation whether they know it or not. And my part of my transformation, a large part, was uh, faith-driven. And two years after I got out of prison, um, I decided to apply to uh, seminary, and I pl- and I applied to, and was accepted by Union Theological Seminary in New York. And that was the first time I had to tell my story as uh, someone who had committed a crime and someone had been to prison, and um, either despite or because of that story, they admitted me to seminary, and I um, I uh, um, went there for three years. I earned a Master's of Divinity, and then I started working in churches and, um, and at family reentry along the same time mm-hmm. and in Bridgeport. And then um, it's become a path to a different kind of spirituality that I really understood. I mean, I've been in 
a recovery for 17 years, sober 17 years now. And that was really the core of my spirituality. And, and, I, and I give credit to my being sober when I went to prison because when I went to prison, I was almost four years sober. And that's, I found out, is very rare because there are guys who, guys who are doing drugs right up to the prison door. I mean, they're, you know, we're, we're addicts. And the fact that I found um, recovery through the, through the 12 steps and was able to go to prison clear-headed and stand up and be, a, be a, a responsible person for my family, for myself, for my community. Um, when I came out of prison, um, I had five, over five years of sobriety, and I was able to come back and tell stories, and, and you know, not just as a, as a cautionary tale, but also as hopefully as a model of how you can live your life more by following um, right, right action, right intent, right, you know, right behavior. And that's what we've tried to live by ever since. All right. So we're going to take a little break here. Uh, these uh, men are going to stay with us uh, for the entire show. Uh, well, I want to talk specifically about housing, uh, about uh, having a place to live uh, in the next segment. Uh, Beth Hines from Community Partners in Action will be joining us and uh, our guests in studio will be giving their perspectives as well. All right, and we are back in studio with me, as I said before, uh, our three formerly incarcerated men, Larry, Dae McKnight, uh, Jeff Grant. Uh, we're going to talk uh, specifically about some of the support services that are and aren't uh, available, as we have been doing straight along here. Um, uh, I'll just put a little bracket on this and say, you know, one of the things that Dae said, and I think it's been echoed kind of around the studio here today, is an awful lot of things that used to be supported by the state and need to be supported by the state, ideally would will be supported by the state, are currently privately supported by philanthropy. And so if you're thinking about where to, you know, make a donation and these stories uh, reach you somehow, uh, think about maybe supporting one of these organizations that, that has pitched in to help. And also think about patronizing some of the organizations that do employ uh, formerly incarcerated people. Uh, you're going to hear about one of them at the end of the show, but you might, might want to go buy Dave's Killer Bread, which is also uh, a, a big leader in that world. But, you know, pick, pick your, make your choices. Anyway, so uh, joining us now is Beth Hines, uh, Executive Director of Community Partners uh, in Action. Welcome to our conversation. Thank you for having me, Colin. So let's talk about uh, a phenomenon that uh, I think most people don't think about very much. Was the, I mean, Larry told a story about uh, getting out uh, and basically ha having almost no idea where he should go. Um, so what part of the what do you what, what can you say about the, the number of people who are discharged from prison and go almost seam, seamlessly from there into homelessness? So I, you know, based on our experience of operating the Hartford Reentry Welcome Center, which opened its doors in September of 2018, mm -hmm. um, this program actually serves people who are end of sentence, who are discharging with no supports. So they're not discharging to parole or probation. So they're not able to access some of the services that the state um, is able to provide. And the biggest challenge that we see for people coming to the center is homelessness. You know, I think when, when people are incarcerated, um, they may think that they have a place to live when they're getting out. But when they get out, they end up 
homeless upon release. Um, and I think that what we need to do is a better job of trying to identify who is at risk of homelessness before they are released from prison so that providers like Community Partners in Action and other providers that serve the reentry population can be prepared for their release so we're not ending up with people coming to our doors in crisis. Right. So, you know, Beth, I, I think one of the things we know about homelessness in general is uh, it makes it very difficult to sub- provide services to people who don't have addresses. You can't get to them. You can't find them to give them services that they may need or be eligible for. I would guess that's exacerbated here. There are uh, services, uh, I would imagine, ranging from employment and job counseling to various kinds of therapies and stuff that that we would want to have delivered. Uh, I, I would also guess a lot of them are being delivered through nonprofits at this point, but how do you deliver them to people you can't find? Exactly. Well, you know, what we do do, though, is when, when clients come to us, we always give them their next appointment so it, so they know when they can come back to see us. Um, and they can come back and see us whenever they need us, but at least they have a next appointment. So if, if, for example, we're able to secure a housing resource for them or we are um, looking to make a referral to, you know, Journey Home or um, Connecticut Co- Coalition to End Homelessness or even employment um, assistance, at least we know that they hopefully have an, you know, will come back in for that appointment. Um, sometimes the participants will have cell phones, um, but the challenge with the cell phones um, at times is, you know, the purchase of the minutes. So, for example, if somebody is trying to register with 211, the Coordinated Access Network for for housing to get on, you know, a, a list for support, you know, sometimes it can be 45 minutes while they're on hold just before somebody picks up, you know, a live voice to pick up to take their information. Unfortunately, our clients, they can run out of minutes during mm-hmm. that time. You know, um, and I don't think that we're, we're, not, we're not always thinking about the obstacles and trying to overcome those obstacles. These obstacles are so real for our participants. And the other thing, too, is when somebody's coming home and they come to our door in a crisis and they have nowhere to go that night, if they've got a history of addiction or, you know, um, they're, gonna, they, they're very likely to use you know, to put to to try to you know wipe away the fact that they don't have a a place to live tonight, and with what's on the street these days, they're at risk of of overdose. Mm-hmm. You know, so there's so many other things that can happen when somebody does not have a place to live, and then if they don't have a place to live, where can they take a shower to go to a job interview? Right. All these things are are interlinked. I want to sort of go around the table, get a little reactions from everybody. Hands are going up and thumbs are going up and all kinds of stuff. So uh, again, again, a lot of body language from everybody. I'll start over here with you, Dai. You had your thumbs up pretty early on in this conversation. Just react to what uh, Beth is talking about. Yeah, I, I put my thumb up because I wanted to salute CPA and Hartford for even though it may be in a limited capacity for providing those essential services to people who EOS and I'm quite sure that that's not state-funded, but it's, it's something that they were creative to get grants, uh, maybe federal, maybe private funding from philanthropists. But I know that it's definitely probably not state-funded. But I think the model that they're using, um, it needs to be enhanced and brought up to full scale 
so they can serve more um, EOS people who end of sentence get out with no parole, no probation all over the state. But I think it's wonderful the work that they're doing in Bridgeport uh, when it comes to homelessness. We get guys that EOS, they can't even get to the shelter. They have to do the 211. They have to do the CANS assessment. It's a lot of bureaucracy. In Bridgeport, the only thing that we have for them, immediate shelter, is uh, a wonderful organization called the Rescue Mission, and they'll allow you to stay there for 30 days, but you got to come wait for the bed every day. And then we, we um, kind of refer and direct a lot of our guys there that get out of prison with nowhere to go that don't have anything in their EOS. So what they're doing in Hartford, that's very, very important, and I pray that that can um, actually be enhanced. Let's go around the table here. You're, you're in next, Jeff. Um, thank you, Colin. Yeah, Beth and I know each other a long time. I was on her board of directors for a few years. And oh, whether hi, it – Hi, Beth. So whether at uh, Community Partners in Action or Family Reentry or, or any of those nonprofits, um, the, the reason they, they were defu- defunded was because of the Connecticut fiscal crisis. But there was kind of a perfect storm of what happened there because Connecticut figured out that because we were a Medicaid expansion state and they had changed the rules for, for Medicaid um, uh, eligibility – so that when you, when you immediately came out of prison, you became eligible, the state figured out that what they could do is they could pass some of these services on to providers that would accept Medicaid. So the contracts that were at Family Reentry and Community Partners Action and others for mental health services and for substance abuse services and services like that, um, those mandated services through parole or the services that were paid for by the state then passed to the federal government to reimburse. So what's happened now is that people come out of prison and they don't know where to go. They don't know where to go for their primary care. They don't know where to go for, go for their substance abuse or their mental health um, services. But these community health services are there in, in Hartford, for example, Wheeler, in New Haven, um, Cornell Scott Hill. Those are examples. And, but people aren't coming out of prison and finding them primarily because if you're an addict, you don't know that you're an addict. And if you have a mental health problem, you don't know that you have a mental health problem if you're in the, in the throes of it. So the people who need the help are not finding it. So there's a huge um, divide between the users who need it and the, and the providers who are providing it, and that problem has not been solved in the state yet. All right. Larry, you also had a Yes, I, I wanted to um, ask the question or maybe make a suggestion that maybe perhaps uh, we can extend those services to actually go into prisons mm-hmm. and sort of recruit these people or sort of find out when are these people going to get out so that this information can be passed to them so that on upon getting out, they could just go right to where it is they need to go. That's a that's a great suggestion. It's just Beth. That seems like common sense too. I'm amazed that that isn't the case. That 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 people's acquaintance with these problems begins the day they're released, not a year before they're released. Now, let me let Beth answer that, and I'll go over to you, Day. So certainly, we have as an agency have been advocating for pre-release services forever. It's critical. 
Um, for the reentry welcome center, we do not currently have the capacity to do any inreach where we would go in and meet with somebody a few months before they are released. And we are privately funded. We're very grateful to the Hartford Foundation for Public Giving for funding the reentry center in Hartford and also to the city of Hartford for their support of the project. And there has been a, a number of, um, of donors and churches who have been incredibly generous to support um, the, the center, and so we're truly grateful. Um, but that in-reach piece is so critical because that would avoid the crisis on our doorstep yes. when somebody mm. comes to us. Yeah. Now, and, and Jeff's 100% right, you know, a lot of those services were cut several years ago. One of the things CPA has been fortunate to obtain is a SAMHSA grant from the Substance Abuse Mental Health Services Administration from the federal government, which is allowing us to go in to Cybulski and to York two months before someone is discharged so that we can do an assessment in terms of what their needs are going to be upon release, which will include housing, substance abuse, mental health, employment. And then what we will do is we're teaming up with intercommunity here in Hartford and anybody that is in need of um, substance abuse and mental health will be immediately connected to intercommunity so that they will have that whole person care, the primary care, everything from medical and dental to mental health and substance abuse. We also were fortunate to be able to secure six recovery support beds through intercommunity. But this is such a small scale. That's, that's, I was going to say that. It just feels, feels like there's a... Uh, <clears throat> bed to volume of need disparity there, right? And I'm sure it cuts across all the services, the amount of services that you really need to deliver to the volume of people. I mean, I just said 11,000 and roughly a year. I mean, not maybe not every single one of them needs the kind of services we're talking about, but a lot of them do. I'm guessing the carrying capacity just isn't there. The what? I'm sorry, I didn't hear the, that. The carrying capacity, the ability, the pipeline isn't big enough to handle uh, everybody. No, in fact, the, SAM the SAMHSA grant is only an, um, funding enough to serve 55 people a year. Right. So before right. we run out of time here, and I don't know who wants to talk about this, maybe I'll start over here with you. I mean, another part of this is uh, there are laws and rules about uh, who, whether you can discriminate against uh, people who have been formerly incarcerated in relation to housing and stuff like that. But I'm guessing that there are also some realities that uh, about just you know where where you can manage to live if you're uh, part of that world uh, absolutely <clears throat> i think that before i answer that if i may i just want to because i have my hand up i just want to yeah. go back to uh, what larry said the pre-release component is very 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 important and um evidence-based research supports that you should go in and engage the client 6 months prior to release which would contribute, uh, uh, you know, a high percentage to the person have a successful reentry when they return to society. Now, family reentry, when we lost the contract, that was our model. We go in six months prior to release, engage the client, we do the, conduct the assessment, help build a treatment plan, and when they get out, we help them to fulfill that treatment plan and take care of their needs. When that contract was cut, we have not stopped. I go in every Tuesday or every other Tuesday night to Willard Cybulski since the contract was cut voluntarily, and we still have 30 guys in a group, knowing that resources are limited, these guys still come out because they want change. And when they come out, uh, Fred Hodges is a wonderful, uh, uh, our director of community affairs and family reentry, 
he's real creative and he still tries to find uh, services and resources for these guys with no budget for that program. Mm-hmm. And we've, we have consistently went in even when the budget was cut. So with that, I'm saying the message is if we can restore and bring these programs back up to full capacity, I believe that it will uh, be a great positive impact and continue to work that Connecticut was on track to doing. All right. So we are going to need to take a break here. Uh, and we could do a whole show, I think, on the limitations that are put on, on housing. I mean, uh, public housing, sometimes even if your family's there, you can't live there. You know, parole officers don't want to have offenders living with other offenders. There's discrimination. There's barriers. It's, it's a, we could do a whole show on just that. Uh, but time is short. We'll take a quick break here. We'll come back. All right. So uh, first of all, I want to thank uh, the producer who put this whole show together. That's uh, senior producer uh, Betsy Kaplan. Um, I can, Betsy Kaplan is a very, very conscientious person. I can, I can always tell when she's worried that the show is not going to be good enough, not going to be perfect. So she's been worrying about this and, and wearing a hole in the carpet, pacing back and forth about it for days and days and days. This, this is complicated stuff, and there's no way that in 49 minutes we're going to be able to get, to get to all of the problems and all of the issues. But I think she's done a tremendous job putting together this conversation. Uh, thanks also to Kion Wolf being on the board, making the whole thing sound good. Uh, tomorrow, we we are going to shift gears and talk uh, apropos of the holiday about Halloween. Anyway, that is to come. Uh, right now, we are here to talk uh, to our guest in studio. Uh, that's Jeff Grant, uh, Dae McKnight, uh, and Larry. Uh, and also joining us from one of the – I said at the beginning, uh, uh, you know, Larry was able to find employment uh, at a restaurant uh, through another ex-offender. Uh, well, there is uh, one restaurant around here that is uh, proud in public uh, about trying to to give second chances, trying to give new opportunities to formerly incarcerated people. That is Bears Smokehouse BBQ. Uh, and joining us right now from there is Cheryl McDonald. Welcome to this conversation. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Right. Uh, first of all, I just want to say thank you for what you're doing. Uh, in the course of getting ready for this show, I also discovered uh, just I'm not promoting this necessarily, but if you don't feel like cooking Thanksgiving dinner, they have a really good deal where for like $135, you get like dinner for eight basically that you just take out and you serve at home. So uh, think about that. Go on their website. Anyway, um, uh, explain why you do what you do. What's the philosophy behind wanting to hire formerly incarcerated people? Yeah, so we, uh, thank you first. Um, we, we are often asked that question, and I have to be honest that when we opened, which was just about six years ago, uh, it was not part of our original philosophy. It was just something that came to, came to happen for us. Uh, we had a need for employees. Uh, when we first opened, it was just Jamie and I. I was still working full time, and it became quickly apparent that we needed some employees. I worked at the time for the Hartford Public Schools. I had a connection to the Adult Ed Center, put up a flyer, and we hired somebody who had a background. And um, our next hire, same thing, someone that had a background, um, you know, had been incarcerated in the past. And uh, so, and then we then we created a, um, we had a relationship with Billings Ford and they had a few more people come to us. And we just had great success. And I actually attribute our startup to having uh, these folks on, on staff with us. And so I think it, it happened organically. Um, and, uh, you know, 
as we had this success and never any, we never question, we didn't even question it, just became part of what we did. And um, uh, as a result, we've, you know, gotten to know some folks at the halfway houses that we've gotten a pipeline of employees, et cetera. So kind of how it happened. It's a it's a great concept, and I assume I mean yeah. One of the questions is how do you find people? I'm guessing at this point people find you. I mean there aren't that many places that that do what you're doing right now. I would guess people come and find you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, in 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 the beginning, like I said, we had these relationships with um, Billing Swords at the time. Um, we've and then a few other halfway houses that uh, honestly I don't even recall exactly how we got connected, but. I, I just knew the value myself of, you know, finding people that would show up. Um, one of the great things about a halfway house that I found was they were going to be reliable. You know, they were getting a pass to come to work. And so they were going to show up, which you don't often get, um, you know, from someone who doesn't have that kind of structure uh, for themselves. And in the, in the restaurant industry, especially, or, you know, really any in any industry, you know, having people that show up and they're ready and willing to work is, um, you know, is, is sometimes hard to find. So. Yeah. Uh, let's get some of these uh, guys to react a little bit to that. Um, yeah, Larry, you got something you yes, want to say? Um, uh, I wanted to say that uh, you know, uh, thank you, Beers, for you know, um, sticking up for some ex-offenders. I know all of us are not perfect, but still, uh, we had the some of us still do to have the still have the desire to perform to expectations uh, upon our release. And you're not the only business that does that out there. There's quite a few. In in the Hartford area, that's have your um, along your line of thinking. Um, but for those that don't, you know, and if you're on a borderline of you know hiring ex offenders, uh, hopefully you look at the, a bill that was passed uh, two years ago with the general general assembly, uh, bill number sixty two nineteen that gives tax incentives to uh, small business or businesses in the Hartford area. So you know if you want to use that. As your startup, go right ahead. It's there for your uh, pleasure. And uh, thank you, Beard. Yeah, Dai, I, I hope we have time. We're we only about five minutes left on the whole show. There are still some barriers to employment that, that I you think you see as kind of unnecessary impediments to getting people back to work. Uh, there are a few barriers that uh, legislatively uh, they may have to be changed. Um, but first, let me say to the company uh, – um, Proper name of it, Bears. Yeah, Bears. Uh, yeah. Thank you so much for giving our guys the opportunity. And here's an interesting um, statistic for you: approximately maybe seventy-five to eighty percent of the guys that come out that are serious about reentry, when they go to work, approximately seventy-five percent of that group they end up moving into upper management because of their integrity and their work ethic. And I'm quite sure a lot of business owners have witnessed where they've put the keys in people's hands who were former offenders. And they were some of their best, most reliable and loyal workers. So I thank you real quick. But two areas, um, to get a PSL, public service license, uh, that, that law came out after 9-11. It was to prevent, I guess, uh, terrorists from getting in certain places, getting certain jobs. But it affected people who are formerly incarcerated. If you're formerly incarcerated, you can't drive a limo, you can't drive a cab. But someone, no disrespect, but someone who's been in the country for maybe 20 days and if their paperwork is right, they can drive a cab and a limo. In order for us to do it, we have to go through an appeal process. You can't be a security guard since 9-11. You can't get a guard card and function in the capacity of a security guard if you were formally incarcerated, which being formally incarcerated has nothing to do with terrorism. Mm-hmm. 
All right. And Jeff, I heard a, a little nod out of you, particularly when Cheryl was saying the thing about uh, they show up on time because it's sort of part of the structure they're in. Yeah, I, I think that there's a huge incentive right now for um, for people to hire um, ex-offenders. And some of that is tax uh, incentive driven. Um, some states have direct subsidy, uh, subsidy programs. But I think if we can't figure this out at a time we have 3.7 percent unemployment so that there's there are reasons to take chances and to and, and to give the benefit of the doubt to people that you might not otherwise at, at higher unemployment rates. What are we going to do when and if it swings the other way? So so right now is the time that employers can reach deep into this pool of people who are are smart and ha- or can be trusted and are just brimming with uh, with with the with the need and the integrity to be able to move forward and also for your businesses you probably can't find other people so right now is the time to do it okay so Cheryl you know one thing that Larry said uh, that I thought was uh, interesting he said you know not not everybody is going to be perfect you have had some disappointments although interestingly I think that uh, people who have uh, not worked out have gotten in touch with you sometimes if they're reincarcerated yeah, to say yeah, yeah go ahead say, yeah i was gonna say you know actually our experience has been and, and i think that's where the hang-up is is with employers a you know i'm fortunate i had an hr background and i've worked in you know the public school systems and you see a lot with that and um you know there's always kind of that nerve you know a little bit nerve-wracking for business owners of are you making the right choice with hiring and navigating just you know employees it, it, in HR practices in general. So, but once you can kind of get past that and, and get at, even just one person on board and see that positive experience of, you know, the loyalty, the trust that is there because you're extending that to them when you have that open dialogue and they know that they're not hiding anything from you, you know what they, and, and you're still extending, you know, trust and a job and an opportunity. It's reciprocate. You know, you get that back tenfold as an employer. All right. We're going to have to stop there. We're unfortunately like totally out of time here. I want to thank everybody uh, who helped out here today, especially these uh, three uh, men who are in studio with me uh, sharing their stories. And, you know, one thing Jeff said during the break, Connecticut is like ahead of the rest of the nation uh, or at the at the lead. And we're still not doing anywhere near enough. These are programs that are inadequately funded, just addressing a sliver of the population's needs. But we're better than most of the states think how sad that should make you all right